Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. This is the fourth message in a short series entitled, How God Treats His Children. I don't normally start a message by telling you which number it is in a series, but in this particular case, it's important that we keep the subjects I'm covering in context. To miss them is to misunderstand this whole subject. So let me just very briefly review. The first message had to do with the fact that God blesses us. So emphatic is all of that that the New Testament says he has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in Christ. Very simply put, he has given us everything we need to make it to spiritual maturity. The second message was on the fact that God encourages us. He encourages us to grow to Christ-like spiritual maturity. And he does that through his word and through other people who minister to us. The third message was on the fact that God child trains us. The word for that in some translations of the Bible is chastening And the other word that's most commonly used, and perhaps is most accurate, is he disciplines us. Now that form of discipline varies, but the fact is that God, out of love, child trains us again so that we would come to spiritual maturity. Now those were the first three messages, and as I said, this is the fourth. The subject of this message is anger. And the question is, does God the Father get angry with his children? Now, you probably have never heard that discussed. I don't think I have ever heard a message on that subject in my entire life, and I've been around for a while. Does God get angry with us who know him? Well, there is a bit of a debate about that. It's not a major debate, but there are those who disagree on that subject. And some say, well, yes, he did that in the Old Testament, but he doesn't do that in the New Testament. And others say, oh, no, he gets angry even with us today. So which answer is correct? Well, that's the question I would like to grapple with today. And there are other ramifications of it. But let me just begin by saying that there is absolutely, positively, no question or debate but the the fact that God got angry with people in the Old Testament. For example, in Exodus we are told, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses of all people. That's in Exodus chapter 4, verse 14. Later, Moses asked the Lord, Why does your wrath burn hot against your people? 
whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. That is in Exodus chapter 12, verse 11. Isaiah says, the anger of the Lord was aroused against, quote, his people. Isaiah 5, verse 25. The psalmist says, the Lord is slow to get angry. Psalm 103, verse 8. But, I'm adding, based on those other verses, he does get angry. In the Old Testament, he may have been slow to get angry, but angry he did get. But that's not the question. That's not the part that's debated. The part that's debated is, does he get angry in the New Testament? Now, there are people, as I mentioned, who say that he does not. Another word for anger in the Bible is wrath. They're synonyms. They're not exactly the same, but for our discussion, they are virtually the same. And the people who say he does not get angry point out that the wrath of God was poured out on Christ when he died in our place to pay for our sin, and therefore... He doesn't get angry with children today. There are other arguments that they use. For example, in Romans chapter 1, it talks about the fact that the wrath of God has appeared from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And that chapter goes on to explain that as a result of that wrath, God gave them over to certain sins. So they argue The wrath of God is on unbelievers, not believers. And finally, they will argue that, well, the wrath of God is expressed in hell. There's an eternal wrath of God, according to that point of view. And so God's wrath is on unbelievers now and in hell in eternity. There are others, however, who argue that that's not true. That those arguments do not negate the fact that the New Testament teaches that God does get angry with his children. So that little minor debate raises some questions. Things like this. The Bible clearly teaches he gets angry at unbelievers. Does he get angry at believers, those who've trusted his son as their savior? The Bible teaches there's anger. Is it temporal or is it eternal? And maybe we should ask, since they brought it up, that one point of view is, does God's anger mean that he abandons people? That's what they say about Romans 1. Or does Romans 1 teach something else? Now, the bottom line is very simply this. Does God get angry with his children? You ever thought about that? Let me ask this. I've talked to people as a pastor uh, who felt God was angry at them. Maybe I should ask it that way. Have you ever felt God was angry at you? A bunch of you are shaking your heads. Oh. Well, is that true? Does God get angry? Or is it not? Was all the anger poured out on Christ and therefore it isn't given to us? What does the New Testament say about the wrath of God? Interested? 
Would you like to know? Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. <clears throat> what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to look at the wrath of God in three books of the Bible in the New Testament. The first is 1 Thessalonians. Then we're going to look at that passage in Romans. And we're going to end up by talking about what that says in Ephesians. So let's begin with 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 2, verse 14 says, And you, brethren, become imitators of the churches of God, which are in uh, Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they do not please God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles, that they may be saved, so that as always to fill up the measure of sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Now I want you to focus on verse 16 for just a second. It talks about wrath has come. And in the context, he's talking about wrath abiding on unbelievers who are opposed to the gospel. And he's saying wrath has come upon that group to the uttermost. That is completely. But the point is, and this is what I want you to see, it says has come. To put it rather simply, that verse is saying there is a present wrath, and it is on unbelievers. Matter of fact, the first time I got introduced to this was many, many years ago. And the verse that uh, stuck in my mind was John 3.36, which says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but... The wrath of God abides on him. Now that verse is saying the same thing. There is a present wrath that is on unbelievers. Now, go back to 1 Thessalonians and look at chapter 1. And look at verse 9. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you how you turn to God from idols to serve the living God and to wait for his son from heaven who has raised him from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Did you see that? In chapter 2, it talks about a wrath that has come. And in chapter 1, it talks about a wrath to come. So, let me just simplify everything I've said thus far. There's a present wrath on unbelievers, and there is a wrath to come. Got it? So far, so good. Turn to chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And look at verse 1. But concerning the times and the Seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. 
For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. All right. Verse 1 talks about the day of the Lord. Now, uh, that's almost a technical term in the Bible. I don't have time to go into all the ramifications, but it primarily comes out of the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, it includes a future time of judgment on the earth, commonly called the tribulation period, and a kingdom that follows that. In other words, the day of the Lord is the day when God begins to once again visit the earth in judgment and in the blessing of the kingdom. So when chapter 5, verse 1, he talks about the day of the Lord, that's what he's talking about. Now look at verse 3. When they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come upon them, just like an expecting mother all of a sudden is giving birth to the baby. So I want you to note that the day of the Lord is a day of destruction. So that the picture Paul is painting is there's coming this time when people are going to say peace, peace, safety. And that's probably a reference to the fact that the Antichrist is going to make a covenant with the Jewish people and some others, and there's going to be peace, or they're going to, they say there's going to be peace at the beginning of the tribulation. But even before that, if they say peace, peace, then all of a sudden, bam, that day of the Lord is going to start, and sudden destruction is going to come upon them. Now look at verse 4. But you, brethren, are not in darkness. Now, in verses 1 to 3, he's been talking about the day of the Lord, sudden destruction. In verse 4, all of a sudden he says, I want to talk about you now. I'm going to talk about the brethren. You are not in darkness, so that that day would overtake you as a thief. Now drop down to verse 9. Because for God did not appoint us to wrath. Huh. So, it says, but to obtain salvation, meaning deliverance, through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what he's saying in verse 9 is, there's a day of the Lord, verse 1. It's a day of destruction, verse 3. And he calls it wrath in verse 9. But his point is, we're going to escape that. We're going to be delivered from that which is exactly what he said back in chapter 1, verse 10, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, what is the point of all of that? All right, let's review. Two kinds of wrath. Present wrath on unbelievers. Future wrath, tribulation. That's the point. That there is a wrath to come, and that wrath to come is in the tribulation period. So in the book of 1 Thessalonians, there are two kinds of wrath, present wrath and a future wrath, and the future wrath is when the tribulation begins. 
The book of Revelation talks about that over and over and over again, starting in chapter 6, going all the way through chapter 18, where judgments are poured out on the earth, the sealed judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments, all of that is called the wrath of God being poured out on the earth. So, one more time, there is a present wrath and a future wrath, and the future wrath is? Ah, you got it. Now let me, before I go on, pause here for a second. I think it is common to, to think of hell as the wrath of God. Right? God's going to pour out his wrath on unbelievers eternally. A number of years ago, I heard a professor, a Greek professor, say there is no such thing in the New Testament or the Old of an eternal wrath of God. I was shocked. What? That's what I've always thought. What do you mean? So that provoked me to do a little digging. Went home, pulled my concordance off the shelf, looked up every reference to wrath in the New Testament. And when I got all done, I concluded, huh, he's right. There is no clear reference to an eternal wrath in all of the Bible. There are some passages a few people use but in context, I don't think they hold up to support that view. So I have concluded, as well as some others, I'm not alone in this, that there are only two kinds of wrath. There is a present wrath, in 1 Thessalonians it's against unbelievers, and there's a future wrath, and we who know the Lord are going to get delivered from that, meaning the rapture is going to come before the tribulation. That's what that means. Got it? That's only the beginning of the story. Turn to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1. And look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. All right, if there's two kinds of wrath in the Bible, which one is this? It, the, the, the consensus is growing. It's present, right? And it's on whom? On the ungodly, on unrighteousness. In other words, simply put, God gets angry at sin. Make sense? He's not happy about that. So, the rest of the passage goes on to explain that because of his wrath, he gives people, and some translations render this, he gives them up to sin. It would probably be better translated to say he gives them over to sin. That is, he uh, allows them to continue sinning. Now, those who say that the wrath of God cannot be on believers today come to this very passage and they say, see, he gives them over to sin. That means he abandons them. But whoa, 
just because he gave them over to sin, let them go on sinning if they wanted to, doesn't mean he abandons them. If you say that, then he look at the list of sins in that chapter. Then he never saves anybody. But the fact that he saves people indicates that he isn't abandoning them. He's just, if you want to go into sin, he's going to let you do it. Turn to chapter 5. The plot thickens, and it gets real interesting. Look at verse 9. Much more then, having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but the Bible doesn't use technical terminology. Matter of fact, if you go study any subject, one of the first things you have to do is learn all the technical jargon. I had a conversation this week uh, with somebody in psychology, and we were talking about a psychotic, a schizophrenic, and a neurotic. I've heard those terms all my life. Do you know what those three things mean? What's a psychotic? And according to the person I was talking to, that's somebody that is totally uh, lost touch with reality. Well, what's a schizophrenic? A schizophrenic who's at least included in that pile are people who have grandiose ideas. They put their hand in their vest and they think they're Napoleon. They're nuts. And a neurotic is a neurosis. Now, you're going to learn psychology, you've got to learn all that jargon, right? And it's the same way no matter what field you're in. If you get into medicine, it gets worse. If you get into the legal field, it's worse. If you're a mechanic, you've got to learn what an alternator is. Some of you look at me, you don't know what an alternator is. All you know is it's under the hood or in the trunk or under the car. Somewhere there's one in there, right? But the Bible doesn't talk like that. It talks just very, very plainly. But sometimes you have to understand the way those words are used. It's not that they're technical. They aren't. It's just that you have to understand the way they're used in the Bible. For example... This is as technical as it gets. Verse 10 says, we were reconciled to God. Now, do you know what reconciliation means? Of course. If two people are falling out and they're not speaking to each other and somebody comes along and helps them get back together, they are reconciled. Now look at verse 10. When we were enemies, we were reconciled. So what the Bible is teaching is we were born sinners, we disobeyed God, we went our own way, and the Bible says that means you're the enemy of God, you're certainly not his friend. And because Jesus Christ died for you and arose from the dead, when you trust Jesus Christ, you are reconciled to God. So there's peace instead of war between us. All right, that's about as technical as it gets. Let me give you another technical word justified. It says that in verse 9. Much more having been justified by his blood. Now that one may need a little explanation. Not much, but a little. And the explanation is simply that justified means to be declared righteous. That's all. That's all it means. I am 
declared righteous. Now, Paul just spent three chapters describing the fact that we're all sinners. And then he says, but when we trust Jesus Christ by faith, we are reconciled to God and he declares us sinners righteous. Incredible. Uh, the way I've illustrated this, some of you have seen me do this. Uh, I'm tempted to do it every Sunday, although I've probably only done it a handful of times the whole time I've been here. Real simple. The Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He who knew no sin became sin. My sin was put on him. That I might be made the righteousness of God in him. He gets my sin, I get his righteousness. So when God looks at me, he sees me as righteous. Am I righteous? We're working on that. But as far as God is concerned, I've been declared righteous. All right, matter of fact, I thought about this the other day. I want you to think of the righteous person you know, but, but besides Jesus. Somebody living today. You know somebody you think is pretty upstanding? You got somebody? Got him in your head? He, she, got it? All right. Imagine standing before the judge being accused of something that that person didn't do. And, the, and, and somehow there's an, a negotiation so that that person's obedience to the law is given to your account. And we make him the sinner. <laughs> Would that be a good deal? That's what it amounts to. I stand before God. God says I'm a sinner. The penalty is death. And Jesus steps up and says, Father, I died. I paid for all of those sins. Look at verse 9. We are justified by his blood. We are justified by his blood. He died for me and paid for my sins. So when I trust his payment, I get, I get not just forgiveness. That's only half the story. I get his righteousness. So that's justification. Now, the way we popularly refer to this is, I got saved. Uh, or we say, I was born again. Now, both of those terms are biblical terms, and they are accurate terms. The simple reality is, the minute you trust Jesus Christ, you are reconciled to God, forgiven, declared righteous, given spiritual life, and you are saved. For by grace are you saved through Faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest you get up there and say, look at what I did. All right. Have you been saved? Past tense. Are you saved? Past tense. Read verse 9. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved. Huh? I thought the Bible said I was already saved. It does. Ephesians 2.8. 
But Romans 5, 9 says, I'm going to be. What's that about? Look at verse 10. For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we should be saved by his life. We shall be saved by his life. Now, what I'm saved from in this case is wrath. Now, we've seen there are two kinds of wrath, present and future. So this one must be future, right? That says shall, right? Be careful. Be careful. Those who say, I mean, there's several ways to take this. Some people come to say, well, that's hell. That can't be. There's no clear verses in the New Testament that says wrath is hell. So the other position is, well, that's the tribulation. Now, that's a possibility, except for verse 10. Verse 10 says, we should be saved by his life. What's that about? We don't get saved from the tribulation by his life. We get saved from the tribulation by the rapture. So what's going on here? All right. In order to understand this, you've got to explain saved. The Bible teaches that we are saved. That word simply means delivered. And it's used all kinds of ways in the Bible. In the Psalms, it's delivered from trouble. In James, it's delivered from sickness. Uh, the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Uh, but it's most often used of being saved spiritually. But even then, it's used in different ways. So I have been saved from the penalty of sin. But the Bible talks about I am being saved from the power of sin. And then it talks about the fact that I'm going to be saved from the very presence of sin. So the word saved in the Bible is used of past tense. And in that past tense, I am saved, I am reconciled, I'm justified, I'm forgiven, and I'm born again. All that is I am saved. But the Bible uses the word to mean I am being saved as I am identified with Christ, as I've been united to Christ, and as I rely upon him, his life, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, that I get this power, I'm saved from the power of sin. Now, I would like to suggest that Romans chapter 5 is talking about being delivered from the power of sin. In other words, present wrath. To say it all very simply, God gets angry at sin. And I think he gets angry at sin because no matter who's committing it, because he's a no respecter of persons. Romans 1 and 1 Thessalonians 2 happen to be talking about present wrath on unbelievers, as does John 3.36. But I think this is indicating God just gets mad at sin. By the way, sin ought to make you mad. It should. We ought to be mad at sin. 
got into a discussion recently about something I didn't realize had, uh, it's about abortion. And I didn't realize how strongly I felt about it. Somebody was trying to defend it, and I got a little animated. It ought to make us mad. That's murder, folks. Now, there are some abortions that are legitimate. I'm not saying all are wrong. Mother's life is in danger. That's another story. But that's a problem. And it ought to, it ought to exercise us to righteousness, right? So, I think God gets angry at sin, period. Or to use the old cliche, which I think is very accurate, God loves the sinner and he hates the sin. That's what this is talking about. So, because of our being united to Christ, which he explains in great detail in chapter 6, I can be delivered from the power of sin by depending on the power of Christ who lives in me. Now turn to chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Verse 9. If we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Whoa. What must I do to be saved? Don't look at that verse. Answer my question. What must I do to be saved? One word. Trust Christ, right? Acts 16, 31. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. One word appears 150 times in the New Testament to tell us what we must do to be saved is believe, and the word means trust. Trust Christ, right? Yeah. Question. Do you have to say anything? No. no. Did I hear somebody say no? Yes. Do you have to confess with your mouth to be saved? Oh, you're catching on. Somebody said, which saved? Look at verse 9 again. If you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Verse 10, for. You remember what I told you about the word for? I'm about to explain to you what's going on. For with the heart man believes unto. What's that? Justification. Matter of fact, it's the same Greek word. The minute you believe in your heart, you are what? Justified. You are saved from the penalty of sin. And with the mouth, confession is made unto? Now that can't be past tense. Because if you believe in your heart, you're justified. You're declared righteous immediately. So what is confessing with your mouth? You shall be saved. That's got to be saved from the power of sin. So read verse 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How can they believe in him in whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without a preacher? Now let's, there, let's go backwards. First of all, you've got to have a preacher. That's me. Then you've got to hear. That's you. Then you've got to believe. What happens the minute you believe? What happens the minute you believe? A whole bunch of things. You are justified, reconciled, born again, forgiven. Justified. Got it? 
Well, then why would you have to call? If you've got all that, why would you have to call? Because you ain't been saved from the power of sin yet. That's why you've got to call. And calling on the Lord is a little phrase used in the New Testament to characterize believers that are walking with the Lord. So what I do to go to heaven to escape the penalty of sin is trust Christ. And then I discover that didn't solve all the problems. Don't tell anybody, but I still have the old nature, right? Come on, fess up, right? So now what? I say, Lord, you know, you said love everybody. But that, that fellow really irritates me. So would you give me the grace to love him? Now what's that? Being saved from the power of anger. Right? Now, the bottom line of all of this is very simple. Romans starts out saying, the wrath of God is on sin. And when you trust Jesus Christ, you're declared righteous, but that doesn't mean you are righteous. It means you're declared righteous. And as Romans 6 explains, in order to become practically righteous... You need to obey the Lord, and as Roman 10 explains, you do that by calling on the Lord and asking for his grace. So I'm going to quote the verse you've heard me say over and over and over and over and over again. Come boldly to the throne of grace, that you might receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. That's calling on the Lord. It's saying, Lord, I need your grace. And when you do that, you are saved from the power of sin, and God is no longer angry. That good stuff? Now let me ask you a question. Does God get angry at believers? You bet. He's a father. What father has never gotten angry at their children? Right? Do, do parents get angry at their children? Well, let me ask it another way. Are you a parent? You know the answer automatically. Of course they do. Well, God's a father. He's a parent. And he doesn't like it when we step out of line. Say more about that in a minute, but first I want you to turn to Ephesians. Ephesians. Is this interesting stuff? You want me to keep going? I mean, we could be here till dinner time. <laughs> Chapter 2, verse 3. Among whom, are all, are, among whom also are all once con conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath. That's talking about unbelievers. Wrath comes on unbelievers. Turn to chapter 5, verse 6. God's not happy with unbelievers. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because upon these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now the sons of disobedience, back in chapter 2, are unbelievers. And he's just listed a bunch of sins. Look at chapter 5, verse 3. Fornication, all uncleanness, covetousness. Let it not even be once named among you as is fitting for the saints. Neither filthiness nor foolishness. 
uh, foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous, uh, who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. I'm going to explain that later in the series. Right now I want you to notice verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words because of these things. What things? Fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, filthiness, foolish talking, coarse jesting. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Because unbelievers commit those sins, God gets angry at them. Now look at verse 7. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. What? Wow. Do you mean to tell me that a believer can do these things? Can a believer commit fornication, sexual immorality? Wow. How about covetousness? Look at the list. How about uh, foolish talking? Coarse jesting? Wow. Can a believer do those things? Let me ask it another way. You ever done any of these things? Are you a believer? Come on, wake up. Paul says, flee fornication to Christians. 1 Corinthians 6.18. He says, put away covetousness, Colossians 3.5, which is idolatry. Can a Christian be an idol? Read the last book, verse of the book of 1 John 5.21. Put away idols. Yeah. And what does God, how does God respond to those sins? He gets angry. That's the way he responds. So my point is very, very simple. It is this. The wrath of God abides on unbelievers now and will be poured out on unbelievers during the tribulation. Not in hell. Now and tribulation. But, since God is no respecter of persons, he can be angry with his children when they persist in sin. Because God gets angry at sin. Romans 1.18. Have I answered the question? Does God get angry at sin? Absolutely. All right, I've got two more hours, so let's see if we can fill it out. <laughs> I want to conclude by making a couple of very simple observations. Number one, in Romans, God's anger is expressed by allowing people to go their own way and continue in sin. Read the rest of the chapter, chapter starting at verse 20. So if you are bent on sinning, God is going to let you. That's the expression of his anger. He's going to let you. 
And isn't that exactly what we've all experienced? Absolutely. Warren Wiersbe said, commenting on Romans 1, when God really wants to judge people, he lets them have their own way. So you think you're getting your way and getting away with it. Be careful. God will let you go, but he's not done. In Numbers chapter 22, the Lord told Balaam not to go see Balak. Then, when he persisted, when Balaam persisted, the Lord gave him permission to go, but he was angry that he went. It's in Numbers 22, 22. God let him go when he already told him not to go. He said, all right, go. And then the Bible clearly says he got angry because he went. So what's the point? God will let you do what you want to do, but he's not happy with it. He's unpleased. He's not pleased, which every parent understands. Children get to a stage where you can't control them. They're going to do what they want to do. Starts about age two. <laughs> One of the great realities of being a parent is you can't control this little creature. It has a will of its own. So there comes a point when a parent says, I've taught you. I've been a good example. I can't force you. You're going to have to make up your own mind and suffer the consequences. Now, I began this message by saying you have to keep everything I've said in context. So the first thing I said is God loves us and God blesses us. God encourages us. And then I said God disciplines us. And now I'm saying if you insist and persist in sin, God will let you do it. But remember the third message, he will discipline you. In other words, there are consequences to sin. Not to mention the fact that we're going to stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ, and that's where we're ultimately headed in this series of messages. So yes, God will let you sin. He's not made a, he didn't make you a robot so that he programs you and you have to do everything he said. He tells you and lets you make up your mind. But if you choose to go the wrong way, number one, he gets angry. Number two, he disciplines. And number three, there's an accountability at the judgment seat of Christ. You go to heaven, it's free, but you're accountable. Amen? Amen. All right, number one, God gets angry, and that's expressed by letting people go their own way. Number two, the bottom line is to deal with sin so that you will not be judged. Matter of fact, look at, uh, look at 1 Corinthians. One more verse. Look at 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. And look at verse 31. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be... Is that a good verse or what? If we judge ourselves, we will not be judged. So if you are a believer, 
and there's some unfinished business between you and somebody else and you and the Lord, primarily you and the Lord, judge yourself. God's anger ceases. You're back in fellowship with him. Full fellowship. Got it? Got it. So the point is, deal with sin. A friend of mine named Joe, years ago, wrote a book. He was a pastor, and now he's a professor. And in that book, he tells the story. Here's his story. A number of years ago, I came to know an elderly retired pastor by the name of J.C. James. His two daughters were members of my church, but at the time, he was a hospital visitor for another church. Occasionally, I would offer to be his driver so that I could get to know him. What a blessing for a young pastor. One day, I received word that Dr. James, then in his 80s, was in the hospital facing surgery and might not recover. Immediately, I hastened to see him. When I walked into the hospital room, I noticed that he was quite agitated. So I began to try to encourage him in the face of death. He stopped me abruptly. Joe, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm not afraid to die. In fact, I'm looking forward to it. My problem is I just bawled out my nurse, and I don't want to appear in the presence of the Lord with that on my conscience. Would you pray with me that I have the opportunity not only to confess my anger to the Lord, but to see that nurse in the morning before I go into surgery so that I can ask her to forgive me? Joe wrote, Dr. James believed in keeping short accounts with the Lord. That is the way to keep yourself pure in preparation to meet the Lord. So that's the bottom line. Just know, you're not going to get away with it. God gets upset. But the minute you judge yourself, come to him. Come clean. It's all forgiven. It's all over. Let's pray.